Hello everyone, welcome back to another 4 Minutes of Threads episode. This is part 25. And a particular hello and welcome to all the new podcast subscribers who found me on Threads Day, which is of course 26th of May, that's when the bomb drops in the film. And I was tweeting about it being Threads Day and the tweet went a bit crazy and we got a lot of new subscribers, so I'm glad you have found me. If you're obsessed with threads and with nuclear war, this is your podcast. And can I also tell new listeners that I have recently published a book on the same topic. It's called Attack Warning Red, How Britain Prepared for Nuclear War. It's by me, Julie McDowell. It's available in hardback, ebook and audiobook. So please do check it out. But let's get on with our four minutes of threads. Our last four minutes segment ended with uh, Ruth sheltering in a ruined old shed high up on the moors, heavily pregnant and alone. The wind is uh, fierce up there, and as she lies huddled on the ground trying to sleep, we hear it howling and whipping over the moor, and that's where we pick up our four minutes here. So we hear the wind furious. And then, silence. The sound cuts and the screen goes black. And that blue text appears on screen to deliver more dreadful facts about the nuclear war. You remember at the earlier stages of the film, before the bomber dropped... When these titles appeared on screen, they were always accompanied by the clattering noise of a teletype machine. That noise, of course, indicating activity. Civil servants and advisors and admin staff are hard at work getting ready for the coming war. They're preparing, preparing, protecting and surviving. Here are the rules, the guidance, the advice. Here is the situation. Clatter, clatter, clatter. But now, when the text appears... It appears in silence. All those offices, clattering and typing, busy at work, all gone now, of course. So the text comes to us in silence, and this uh, this matches the general slide of the film into silence and despair. No more chatty dialogue, of course, not at this point in the film. No more scenes of families bickering around the dinner table or talking at the pub. Language is uh, the exchange of news and information and ideas. Language is civilization, And civilization is now dying. So the text silently patters across the screen. It tells us, Direct effects of attack. Deaths between 17 and 38 million from blast, heat and fallout. Remaining population, weak, cold and hungry. Then the scene changes and, wow, we get some speech. We hear a voice. If we are to survive these difficult early months and establish firm base for the redevelopment of our country, then we must concentrate all our energies on agricultural production. Now, of course, that isn't a warm and friendly dialogue. That's no 
exchange between friends and family and lovers. It's a a lone voice. It's harsh, colourless. It's issuing instructions over a crackling radio. This voice won't be asking if dinner's ready or if the homework's done or nudging their pal to size up them two birds at the bar. That dialogue we had in the earlier part of the film has all shrunk down to one voice. And it's a voice which speaks over a still, black and white image of destruction, showing everything frozen, everything bleak. Sheffield in this image is literally presented as stopped and still and drained of colour. And this voice speaks over it. Speaks to whom, you might wonder? To itself? Who is out there listening? Given the tone and the content of the speech, we can assume that this is a message being broadcast either by the scattered remains of central government or, more likely, it's coming from one of the tiny BBC studios in a regional bunker. As we've discussed on this podcast, each uh, regional bunker or seat of government had their own tiny BBC studio and would use that to broadcast instructions and information to the surviving population. They would hear these broadcasts via the battery-powered radios that they had, hopefully, gathered and carefully stored, along with a supply of batteries, in their fallout room. And of course, to avoid draining those precious batteries, you'd be told to tune in every hour on the hour for the news bulletin, the report, after which you must switch the thing off. So this voice is telling survivors those who are able to hear it, that we must turn our attention to agriculture if we are to survive. Now, obviously, there's a whole bucket load of problems with that. Now, of course, after the nuclear war, Britain can no longer import food. We can assume that all her ports and airports are destroyed. And even if they weren't, who's going to export food to her? Aren't we all now starving and in need? So we need to turn to our own resources. We need to somehow drag food from the land. But the land has just been burned, swept with firestorms and then irradiated. Added to that, we have the onset of nuclear winter, where everything will get dry and cold, and the life-giving sunlight will be blocked. Please look back in the archives to find my special episode about nuclear winter for an explanation by an atmospheric chemist about the theory of nuclear winter, exactly how it would work and what it would do to us. One of my favourite episodes, I think. So the land in Britain is not going to be very conducive to growing crops. Consider also that the bomb dropped in May. Well, that's probably the worst time for a nuclear war because it means you haven't yet brought the harvest in. At least if it happened in late autumn or winter, then you would have already gathered what you could from the land, but a springtime nuclear holocaust? Whoa, bad timing. The silent text returns to the screen, telling us there is a little ripening of crops, and we see more of those still black-and-white images this time of crops lying wilted and flat on the hard ground. 
we have clearly slaughtered the land and now we come begging and cringing at him, asking for mercy. Collecting this diminished first harvest is now literally a matter of life and death. Out on the fields, we see the survivors looking stunted and medieval, bowed over, scratching at the ground, picking up what they can. Some farm machinery trundles past. Chronic fuel shortages mean that this could be one of the last times tractors and combine harvesters are used in Britain. As the survivors pick at the ground, we see one of them is gathering his pathetic harvest up into a newspaper bag. It has the logo of the Sheffield Star on it. That's the newspaper that our Alison used to deliver. So now the same bags, once used by chirpy paper boys and girls who were on their bikes earning some pocket money for Mars bars and a copy of Smash Hits, they're now being used to gather an irradiated harvest. This is something that Threads does brilliantly, putting a, a workaday, ordinary object into a scene of horror, a scene where it just does not belong. My favourite uh, comes later in the film, where Ruth is negotiating for rats in front of an old billboard for standard life. As our survivors gather the grain and shovel it into sacks, we see that they are being watched by a soldier. He stands in the barn with them and silently observes, wearing his helmet and brandishing a rifle. He is guarding them as they are handling the most precious, priceless thing. Food, of course. You no longer need to guard presidents and palaces. You now guard miserable shacks up on the moor, because that is where the most precious objects are now. Forget the Tower of London, forget the crown jewels, this is where it's at. We see a close-up of one of the survivors as she silently works, holding open a sack so grain can be shoveled into it. She does not look like a modern woman from a British city in 1984. Already she looks ruined. Already she looks primitive. How quickly we have shed civilization! She looks wizened and filthy, and she's wearing some kind of hood. She looks like she would communicate in grunts. She looks like she would rip your throat out if you came near that bag of grain. Never mind the soldier, she would see you off. Our next scene shows a silhouette of a figure struggling across the moor, bent double, forcing herself onwards against the harsh wind. It's Ruth about to give birth and trying, like a wounded animal, to find somewhere private and secluded to endure her agony. That ominous blue text appears on screen again to tell us, quote, Effects of radiation in early pregnancy. Fetus carries higher risk of deformity and mental retardation. She finds a barn high up in the moors and 
Just to make it even more menacing, there's an Alsatian chained up outside who barks and rears at her. Someone obviously chained that dog up in the yards, which implies the barn and its farm buildings are inhabited. If so, we don't see anyone. That itself is very troublesome. Um, perhaps the inhabitants are simply out working, foraging. Perhaps they have died, in which case that dog is going to starve to death, chained to a piece of stone. The dog is obviously supposed to be menacing, but if you look closely, you will see that throughout the scene, his, his tail is wagging. And I think they chose well with an Alsatian because um, they say that every every decade has its so-called devil dogs, the dog that we all perceive as being bad, uh, the one who's always in the news for attacks and aggression. Currently, I suppose, it's, it's bulldogs or staffies. Previously, it's been Rottweilers. Uh, Dobermans have had their day. But I remember growing up in the 80s and the dog which scared us all was indeed the Alsatian. In my mind, he is the ultimate scary dog of the 1980s. And here he is. Ruth dodges him and manages to enter a barn and she throws herself on the ground. Thankfully, it's covered in straw and she hurls herself on it with what must be relief. She tears her coat open and immediately starts to scream. And she gives birth in agony, without drugs, obviously. Alone, to the sound of a furiously barking dog and the raging wind. Now I suppose a birth in a barn is supposed to make us think of Jesus. And his birth, of course, was all about tenderness and purity and starlight and gifts. Every December, my gran would set up a manger scene under the Christmas tree. And it was a cute thing. Obviously, as a child observing it, I just thought, okay, cute. I didn't see the spiritual significance. I just saw it as a toy. It's like a doll's house, I suppose. Fake straw, toy farm animals, the wee baby in the manger. But either way, it was a peaceful scene. It's all about serenity and wonder. And for a child, seeing it under the tree, it was infused with the, the festive flavour of Advent and the coming of Christmas. Well, here... We have a baby born in a stable, and all of that is stripped away. This birth is taking place at the opposite spot in the calendar from the classic nativity story. It's in the wrong location, of course. Wrong continent, wrong all round. Ruth is alone. Uh, There are no wise men. No understanding husband, no little drummer boy, no gifts. You can replace the lamb and the donkey with a a raging Alsatian. You can replace the star in the sky with the mushroom cloud. It's a manger scene which is horribly warped and inverted. And of course, the ultimate inversion, instead of announcing a second coming, it is announcing the decline and perhaps end of the world. So the baby is delivered, and at its first cry, 
The Alsatian outside stops barking and stands still. And he's listening. He seems to be listening. So is that a hint of tenderness and threads? Surely not. But you might say that the baby's cry halts just for a second or two. All the aggression outside. The baby's cry soothes that fierce animal. Actually, no, what am I saying? This is threads. Tenderness, get lost. Probably the dog just stops its furious barking to consider this new sound and to then think, ah, possible new food source? Cool. So we will end our four minutes there. It's a shorter four minutes than we usually have because, as I said earlier, the dialogue is vanishing from the film and we are just seeing scenes, shortened scenes of various horrors. That's obviously a deliberate choice uh, on the part of the director and it's a brilliant way of showing the collapse of civilization. A ruined building shows that, of course. Mangled roads. The ruined transport network. That all shows the collapse, but... Language, the decline and the eventual silencing of language that shows the collapse that's going on inside us. And that's, of course, why Threads is so horrifying because you can always repair a building, you can always repair a road. How can you do the same for an entire society? So our four minutes here is ending with the birth of Ruth's child and with the brief, tiny glimpse of hope that the birth brings, Ruth, for a moment... Well, we're going beyond our four minutes here, but Ruth for a moment is thinking, the baby's here, she's arrived safely, counts her little fingers and toes. There's none of that the terrible deformity she was fearing. So Ruth has a moment, no doubt, of joy, of wonder. And for a moment, as we said, the dog stops barking. And then all the horror just resumes. <laughs> and we'll deal with all of that horror in the next four minutes. Thank you for listening. <laughs>